The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all news, advice, tips, and strategies, real estate. And today we're having a slightly off-schedule question and answer week. We missed our Q&A week in January because I was out of town and we had a guest host. This month has five Wednesdays in it, so it seemed like a good opportunity to catch up on some of these questions that we've been saving up here in my email box and to give you a chance to ask any question that you might have about real estate investing. If you're in the greater Cincinnati area, you can call us at 772-9658. If you're listening to us on the web, you can call us toll-free at 877-772-9658. You can also send an email by going to askvena at gmail.com. Ask, it's A-S-K-V-E-N-A at gmail.com. And uh, hit that send button and hopefully we'll get it here before the end of the program. Asking earlier is always better. Make sure that when you are on Facebook next time that you friend Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's uh, Real Life Real Estate Investing on Facebook or realliferealestateinvesting.com. If you just want to go straight there, you'll be joining 5,225 folks who like Real Life Real Estate Investing. You'll also get updates each week about what our upcoming program is all about and other news and information about the world of real estate investing. Again, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Any questions you have at all, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Going to clean up a couple of questions that we received earlier in the day, or even in some cases in previous weeks, where the email came in at 6.05 when we went off the air at 6 o'clock. The first one is from Christy in Dallas, Texas. She says, I was taught that when wholesaling a deal, I should offer, or I should, I should sell it for after repaired value times 70% minus repairs. I'm looking at some of the local wholesalers in my area, and it looks like they're using a number of 73 to 75%. I understand they need to make a dollar also, but is this standard? I don't care what they make as long as I'm making money too. Is this still a deal for me, or are they overcharging? 
That is a very interesting question, Christy, because I could make an argument to you that they're charging what the market will bear and therefore they cannot possibly be overcharging whether or not it's a price that you want to pay. I could also make an argument that they might be taking advantage of people who don't understand values and repair costs the way you do. Setting prices to sell properties to investors is uh, mostly science, but it's also a little bit of art. Because if I lined up 100 renovators and said to them, here's a property, what's it going to cost to fix it? I would get at least 42 different answers. (laughs) I I would get a range of repair costs. And if I asked those same 100 renovators what they thought the property was worth fixed up, I would again get a range of what is the fixed up value. So from the wholesaler's perspective, what what one tries to do is come up with one's best guess for what most buyers would would think the property was worth and what an average buyer would pay to renovate the property. I've seen buyers who have uh, repair costs that I think are just extraordinarily high. When I look at when I look at what it would cost me to fix a property versus what it costs them to fix a property, they 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 might be paying fifty percent more to do the same renovation because they their their contractors charge them more. Maybe they don't have the same supply place as I do. I've also seen buyers who could repair that same property for seventy percent of what it would cost me. So all I can go by is what would it cost me, and then there's going to be people who say no, it would cost more than that, and there will be people who say no, it will cost less than that. So when you're looking at these prices at which these properties are being offered, how are you deciding that it's a seventy-three to seventy-five percent of after repaired value minus repair costs number versus a seventy percent? It you, you it could be strictly because from your point of view, your costs are maybe a little higher than theirs are, and your evaluation of ARV is a little lower. Now, having said all of that, and 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 reiterating that with any particular wholesaler and any particular buyer, not every deal is going to work because the differences the, that they might have in how they evaluate the property. Uh, there are folks out there who wholesale properties who knowingly are selling them for more than 70 cents on the dollar, less repair costs. They, in some cases, even claim that the number they're throwing out there is 70 cents on the dollar, less repair costs, but they know perfectly well that that is not true. They're exaggerating the after-repaired value, they're exaggerating the repair costs, uh, under-exaggerating, of course, the repair costs, and selling to folks who, in all honesty, don't have the skill or education to do their own evaluation. Uh, they are bad guys, these wholesalers. They are bad guys. Uh, there are also wholesalers out there who have a buyer's list of people who the the people themselves have identified that they only need to make X dollars, and so the wholesaler sells it at whatever equals X dollars. Uh, there's no, unfortunately, hard and fast rule where you can find all wholesalers doing exactly the same thing. And uh, I, I guess if that were if that were true, we'd all be going after the same deals and offering the same prices at them. So maybe that's not such a bad thing. But uh, let, me, let me add one more thing, Christy, that's uh, not going to be true in the Dallas market at the moment, but has been true 
in other markets at other times. That number, that formula that you quoted at the beginning, after paired value times 0.7 minus repair costs, can fluctuate, reasonably fluctuate, depending on how hot a market you're in and how expensive a market you're in. In 2003, I knew a lot of wholesalers in, say, the L.A. area that were telling their buyers they were selling them the properties at 85 cents on the dollar. Why did that work? Well, because it was a $500,000 property and a 15% net, net, net profit on a $500,000 property is $75,000. So the the market was, and the market was very hot. So there were a lot of people who wanted that deal. Uh, the, um, the, the, the point is that some of that is, is driven by how hot the market is. And of course, also how expensive the market is. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can call us with your questions at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area, 877-772-9658 outside the greater Cincinnati area, or send us an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means that if you have any questions about anything from how to get started in real estate to what to do right now, wherever it is that you are with that, to financing, finding deals, uh, wholesaling, whatever, you can ask it today at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area, 877-772-9658 if you're going to be calling from outside the area, or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. I uh, received a an email here, and this was actually, I, I got this one about a month ago, and just we haven't had a question and answer week since then. And Mike, in going on, gosh, what are we going on, 16, 17 years on real life real estate, I have never had an email where they sent me a copy of the deed with the email. There's, there's actually a copy of the deed to the property here with this email. Uh, it's, this is from Scott in San Francisco. He listens on podcasts. He says, I have two parcels that border each other and both have street access. One has a home on it. One is vacant. They are both currently encumbered under one loan. I would like to separate the deeds so I can sell them individually. Please suggest how I should approach this information, uh, detailed information. I am guessing that I will have to refi and during the refi separate the title Number two, the home on the parcel would qualify for the full price of the refi, leaving the vacant parcel free and clear. Number three, I attach the deed for your review. And number four, it is my understanding that parcels can be owned individually prior to the subdivision map act. I will go to the county to review the chain of title. Uh, If possible, please let me know which show you answer this on via email. I enjoy your show. Okay, well, you're just going to have to listen to all the shows. Scott, that's how it works. Uh, so the deed you sent me does appear, although it's a, it's a very, it's a grant deed and it's a very brief summary. It does appear as if the, although the, the, the parcels are uh, in the plat map separately, that they are, they have been deeded together for a while. So the way that you're going to separate them is you're going to get a new survey and the surveyor will outline uh, what what the 
uh, folks at the county already know, which is that this is block seven and block eight of this subdivision. And uh, because you have one grant deed, I think you are, in fact, going to have to create a second one once the uh, once the parcels are split up. Yes, you are not going to be able to split them up as long as they have the existing loan on them because the uh, security for that loan includes the vacant lot. And you could ask the lender, but I don't think he's going to be real thrilled about cutting off part of his security. Uh, and if you did it without letting the lender know, the mortgage would still be on both parcels. So I think your idea of, of, of what you need to do here is exactly right. Uh, have them surveyed, split them up. They would actually be redeeded at the time at which you got the refinance, which would be on just the one property. So you need to let the uh, the lender know, of course, that at the closing, there will only be the one parcel. And I think that uh, you will be golden at that point. So thank you very much for your email, Scott from San Francisco. Uh, we've got a caller on line one, Joanne from Cincinnati. Joanne, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Mina. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I should preface this by saying I'm not a real estate investor, but I still enjoy listening to your show. <laughs> You'd be amazed um, at how often I hear that. <laughs> and then and then I think, how could you listen to my show and not end up being a real estate investor? Am I not, am I not being convincing <laughs> enough? I mean... I think everyone in the world should be a real estate investor, but I understand it's not up everybody's alley. So here's my question. Um, my boyfriend is um, partial heir to a chunk of farmland in Kentucky, and the, um, the grandmother who owned it has now passed away. And so the, the family is trying to decide how to find out what this farmland is potentially worth. Mm-hmm. Of course, they'd like to get the most money out of it, but they really don't know who to talk to to get um, an estimate without being locked into selling it to that person or you know, some other kind of obligation. Okay, here's what you're going to do, Joanne. Uh, I started to say go to the yellow pages, but of course that just dated me. Go to Google, <laughs> and you're going to Google uh, appraisers farmland because there's actually... There's actually appraisers who specialize in evaluating farmland. And, it, you know, what, 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 is, what is the highest and best value of farmland? It depends on, it, right now, is it far enough out that it should really be farmed? Or is it close enough in that it could be a subdivision? And they will actually look at it from several different angles. They'll say, you know, based on what other farms are selling for, it's this. Based on what its highest and best use is, it's this. Based on what the income you could expect is, it would be this. Uh, I would think, I mean, a, a standard appraisal costs about $450. I would think this would cost under $1,000. i have never actually had farmland appraised. But I think that's the way you're going to get that third-party evaluation. Because, okay. yeah, I mean, what's it worth to a potential buyer? Well, <laughs> he's going to tell you that, right? <laughs> it, could, sure. it could be different uh, to another potential buyer. And then when you do decide to sell it, uh, there would be um, there would be uh, uh, agents also that specialized in farmland. And I was just handed a note from my assistant that said, be aware that farmland is very much up in value right now due to the increases in food prices. Well, it's not currently being farmed. It's got a it's 25 acres. It's got a house on it and everything else is kind of fallow. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, um, it, it may turn out that the highest and best use is, in fact, farm it. And I and actually, I remember reading this article, and I remember reading that there's now uh, like hedge funds and things that are going out and investing in farmland because the and of course they're not farming it; they're they're renting it to people who want to farm it. Uh, okay. So you may you guys may be in a good position at the moment because of the you know, rising food prices equals rising farmland <clears throat> value. Okay. Could, um, since we're all in the same Cincinnati area, could I get a recommendation on an appraiser from you? A or? farmland appraiser? <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, first of all, first of all, I couldn't do that in any case because we're on public radio and we can't, you know, like offline. Right. <laughs> if offline. I email you. <laughs> uh, secondly, I can probably you can you can email me and I can probably give you a referral to someone who would know someone who is an expert okay. in that, but. Um, you'd be surprised how few farms I've run across in, in like Cincinnati where I invest that I need okay. to get appraised. But yeah, we, I can certainly uh, hook you up with, with an appraiser who's connected and we'll know someone who can do it. All right. Thank you, Vina. And maybe when the economy turns around, I'll be a real estate investor. Oh, so you're going to wait until house prices go up. <laughs> <laughs> you see, maybe I'm like, I don't have a head for business. <laughs> All right, Joanne, thank you very much for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, which means uh, whatever questions you have, including how do I get my farmland appraised, are good questions to ask today. You can call, like Joanne did, at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658, or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. I have an email question here from Donna, who lives in South Carolina. And, oh, please do, please do let us know from where you are writing. She says, I had a contract for deed with a buyer. The buyer couldn't pay. And she puts this in ironic quotes. The buyer couldn't pay. We converted to a lease, but they will not sign the cancellation of the contract for deed. I filed for eviction, and we have a court date on Monday. They sent a check for January after I filed for the event, the eviction and February. They've paid late multiple times, given us two bad checks, which they sent us cashier's checks to replace, refused to pay the late fees, etc. Can I cash the check for January and February rent and still try to get them evicted, or will that stop the process? From everyone I talk to who's ever been to the magistrate court, they say it will be thrown out because of the contract for deed, even though I have a lease. Do I take the check, cancel court, and file to stop the contract for deed? Do I go to that hearing and uh, reinforce to myself that I should never be this gullible, nice, slash stupid to another tenant again? Uh, well, Donna, uh, first of all, I'm, let me say, you know, we're not in the business of giving legal advice here on real life, real estate investing. And I certainly would uh, take what I'm about to tell you and run it past an attorney in South Carolina who is familiar with tenant landlord law and with land contracts. Having said that, do not go to eviction court on Monday, in my opinion. The fact that you got these folks to sign a lease does not... Uh, make the the contract for deed that they already have go away. You now have two conflicting contracts on the same property, and the one that's going to uh, cause you trouble in eviction court is, of course, the contract for deed. With a contract for deed, those folks have an equitable interest in the property, and 
they can't be evicted like tenants, even though they also have a lease on the property as well. If you go into eviction court and try and evict them, and if they show up and say, we have a land contract, either at that point or later on, uh, your eviction case is going to get thrown out of court and you are not going to look good because you tried to do something that you really couldn't do. My recommendation from a business standpoint would be, yes, cash the January and February checks because you can't go to eviction court on Monday anyway, or at least I wouldn't. Uh, Before you do that, call the bank and make sure that they're good so that you don't end up with bounce check fees because they've given you bounce checks before. As an aside, when someone bounces checks to you, don't accept checks anymore. Only accept money orders, cash, or certified funds. And then do what you can do to get them to sign what you're referring to as a cancellation of contract for deed. That's um, typically going to be something along the lines of a quit claim deed. In South Carolina, they may actually call it a cancellation of contract for deed. I'd be curious as to why they don't want to sign it since they did sign the lease. And you might use the fact that you're not going to eviction court on Monday as a negotiation tool to get them to sign that. Because, uh, you know, you can say, look, I'm going to give you a break this time. We'll see if you can get back on track. But if you want me to accept these and not go to eviction court, you need to sign this quit claim deed or cancellation for contract for deed. Uh, but it's, it's not going to work to go to eviction court, in my non-legal opinion. So, um, Yeah. The, the fact that you have a the fact that you have a lease on top of that contract for deed doesn't doesn't um, doesn't make the contract for deed go away. You need to make that go away. Appreciate your question, Donna. If you have a question for us here on Real Life Real Estate Investing, you can give us a call at 772-9658 or at 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email by going to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, which means anything you want to know that I can tell you, you can call us or email us and we'll get your questions answered today at 772-9658 if you're here in Cincinnati. If you are listening to us online at wmkvfm.org, you can call at 877-772-9658. Of course, that is a toll-free call. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. While you're sitting around thinking of a question, you can go to askvina.com and sign up for our free weekly e-letter. Every week we send out notification about the upcoming program and an article that I at least hope is of interest to real life real estate investors. This week's article was about why you need both a cash strategy and a an income strategy if you want to succeed in real estate in the long term. So you too can receive our weekly e-letter by going to askvina.com, clicking the box that says try the weekly e-letter and filling in your information. Question here from Alyssa in Cincinnati. She says, I am in second position behind a bank on a property owned by a an investor. He owes the 
traditional bank $35,000. He also owes me $35,000. The property is worth approximately $50,000. Of course, I would not be writing to tell you this if it were not for the fact that he is behind in his payments to me and has recently informed me that he cannot catch up. What are my options? Should I foreclose? And if so, will I receive my $35,000 before the other lender receives their $35,000? And unfortunately, Alyssa, the answer is no. The reason that your mortgage is called a second mortgage is because it is in second position, meaning that in the case of a foreclosure, before you see a dime, first any back taxes will be paid. So you might want to check and see how much the back taxes are. I can promise you if you're not getting paid, the tax people probably aren't either unless uh, that's being escrowed as part of the first mortgage. And then the first mortgagor, or sorry, first mortgagee will get paid. And then whatever is left you'll get. Now here in Ohio, there is a minimum bid set by law for at foreclosure sales. And it's 66% of the appraised value of the property. If you think the sheriff is only going to appraise the property for $50,000, that means that the minimum bid will be somewhere just above $30,000. So let's, let's, let's outline what's going to happen if you foreclose. You're going to pay for the foreclosure if you find the right attorney and he does it at a reasonable cost that that will cost you around three thousand dollars that is assuming that the borrower does not declare bankruptcy during the process which will uh, both delay it significantly and probably increase your cost as the uh, as your attorney has to continue to go back to court and file motions for relief from stay and so on. But let's say none of that happens. It's going to cost you about $3,000 to foreclose on the property. Then the property will go to auction. You don't just, you don't just get to have it because you foreclosed on it. And the auction will attract some bidders and the bidders are likely to bid, end up bidding on, on this property as you describe it, no more than about $35,000. So a winning bidder at $35,000 would net you nothing and would uh, basically pay off the first mortgagee. You, however, are allowed to bid at the sale as the second mortgagee. So you could bid $36,000 and that would probably all get sucked up by the other folks. That would probably be, you know, the taxes plus the first mortgage would probably... Uh, total more than $36,000. And then you would have to come up with that $36,000 by the end of the month to actually acquire the property. That would leave you with $39,000. That's your $36,000 bid, plus the $3,000 it cost you to foreclose, plus the $35,000 that you already have in it. So you <laughs> basically, you would end up in this deal even more upside down than you are right now. So what are your options? Well, one option is if this is something that you can reasonably do and if the numbers appear to work, you could go to your borrower and say, look, sign the property over to me. 
I will fix it up, I will hold it, or I will sell it, or whatever it is that you intend to do. When he signs it over to you, what you'll be doing is buying it subject to the existing first mortgage. So if that makes sense to you, if the numbers of the deal make sense, if you could put some money into it and sell it for 70 and thus recover more of your money, uh, then do that. However, be aware that you need to get a title search done. You need to get a title search done to make sure you're not taking it subject to any other liens that he hasn't paid. And you need to get a title search done to make sure that he is current on his first mortgage. If he's not current on this on his first mortgage, this will probably all be taken out of your hands when the first mortgager forecloses. And uh, it'll be the same situation. You can go in and bid, but by bidding, I think you're going to end up further upside down than you are right now. A question that I would ask you, Alyssa, and ask any private lender that might be out there is how did you end up in second position with a total of $70,000 owed against a property worth $50,000? Did you not understand the value of the property when you made the loan? Was the property worth a lot more when you made the loan? Was this you make a loan maybe a few years back? Has it has it gotten into worse condition and the market has dropped? Or did you make a mistake that a lot of private lenders make, which is hand this guy a bunch of cash under the understanding that he was going to use that cash to fix up the property? A lot of private lenders do that. It is a huge mistake. If what happened is he, he bought the house for 35 from the lender, uh, or bought the house for 35 used the lender's money to do it, and you gave him another 35 to, quote, renovate the property, and he ended up spending the money instead of renovating the property, or maybe he did part of the renovations and spent the rest of the money. Uh, that's, that's unfortunately a story we hear a lot, and anyone who is contemplating making a loan on an investment property needs to seriously consider taking any part of that that is for repairs and putting it in escrow until those repairs are done, not handing it over to the borrower because then you have no control over your money and stuff like this happens. Thank you very much for your email, Alyssa. We, uh, I think, need to take a quick break. And uh, during that time, you can ask your question here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. The numbers are 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area. 877-772-9658 if you're listening to us outside of greater Cincinnati area or send us an email at askvena, A-S-K-V-E-N-A at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Today's question and answer week and uh, I'm anxiously awaiting your questions because I have one more one more that uh, I can I can read here and then um, we're just going to sit in silence for the final 10 minutes of the program unless Mike has some pressing real estate question that he has to ask. He's thinking real hard, but I don't think he's coming up with anything. 7729658 is the number if you're here in the greater Cincinnati area. 877-772-9658 is the number if you're listening to us online or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. I have a question here from Mike who did not say where he was from. Hmm. Uh, But it's another one of those um, 
unfortunate stories that we hear sometimes. He says, Vina, I don't mean to complain. I just need some help here. In my first two deals, a supposed mentor put me into uh, two bad rehab projects. And I assume uh, by by bad, you mean it was like too much uh, money for the deals. Uh, He says to salvage the deals under fire. I learned the rehab process up close and personal. <laughs> I think that's a way to um, a way of saying that uh, he did it himself as, as as time went by and more and more money went into the deal. He says, what is my best way of recovering from this? This took all of my savings. I have private lender money in this. I still cannot sell the properties. I have them rented and I feel very frustrated. What would be the best next step? I don't want to get out of real estate, but I feel really, really burned and appreciate any advice you care to offer. Um, That's a tough situation there. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, again, I, I hear the, oh, I had this person who said he was going to mentor me. And what he did instead was he sold me bad deals and told me they were good deals. And I trusted him. And and so on, and uh, we've you can probably go back into the archives on iTunes and hear my lecture about being careful in choosing mentors uh, repeatedly. Uh, so um, you know, sorry that sorry that happened to you. You're not you're not the first one that that's happened to. In terms of moving forward, I assume that uh, despite the fact that the rehab went went wrong and cost more than you thought it was going to, that with tenants in them, they are at least self-sustaining and that you can uh, make those payments to the private lender up until the time that perhaps the market recovers or something and you're able to sell the property. Your real question is what what is the thing to do moving forward? And I, I think that I would recommend that you look into wholesaling because you you did you know you got burned my headphones just went off i don't know what you did but i can't hear myself anymore <laughs> sorry just in a stop there you go whatever whatever you wiggled you wiggled it again and i can hear myself again um you got you got burned because the first two deals you did were deals that you didn't understand and that you had to get um that you had to get uh, uh, money put into. In a wholesale deal, you're going to learn a lot about the market. You're going to learn a lot about how to evaluate properties. You're going to uh, learn how to estimate renovations. And they're fairly low-risk deals because they're not deals that, that, that you're going to end up sticking a whole bunch of money into a renovation you don't understand. So it's not that it's not that wholesaling is the ideal thing for every new investor or for everyone who might be in a situation similar to the one you're in. It's that I think given that you want to stay in real estate and what you are feeling burned about is really the the fact that you did a rehab that, that went upside down, uh, that that might be the next couple of deals you do because it will help you understand renovation costs and so on much better. Question from Michael here in Cincinnati. He says, I am a landlord who enjoys being a landlord, managing the business, taking care of tenant issues, and all of the other things that go along with the business. Well, yay, Michael. You'd be amazed at how rarely I hear people say, I am a landlord who enjoys being a landlord. 
He says, my day job, however, requires travel overseas with limited phone access for four to six days at a time. Do you have any suggestions for dealing with these periods of time when I'm not immediately available for tenant issues, but at the same time, not ready to turn the management of my properties over to a full-time property manager? Uh, that is a great question, Michael, because your uh, your 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 other options here are a little bit limited by what the law says about who can manage properties. I, I understand you don't want a full time property manager, but you really can't have somebody managing your properties who's not a licensed real estate agent unless you are paying them a salary. If they're a, if they are a salaried employee of the owner. Uh, you can they they can quote manage properties for you. Now the question is, what is manage properties? Because it sounds to me like what you really need is someone to answer the phone, not not to make decisions about leasing, not to uh, you know do, do anything other than potentially uh, you know go fix a sink if the sink needs to be fixed. I would say that's maintenance, not property management. So I think it's possible that you need two things here. One is a maintenance person who can be on call, and I assume you already have a maintenance person, uh, and the tenant should should probably have that person's phone number. The other thing that you probably need is a um, a system with your tenants that says there are times when I am gone for four to six days at a time, and I will not have easy access to the phone. So if there is an emergency you call this maintenance person. If there is not an emergency, you call me, I will get access to the phone at some point during my trip and I will get back to you. Now, the question that you didn't directly ask, but I'm kind of wondering if it was what you were asking, is what about when you have vacancies? How do you get them shown while you're out of town? And the answer is, again, and now that is management. When someone's like showing a unit and taking applications and things like that, uh, you would really need somebody with a license to do that and or pay them on a salary. And you don't seem to have enough enough job here for somebody who's getting paid on a on a salary. You don't have you don't need somebody full time. A uh, couple of options. One is, you know, a lot of landlords don't show their own units. They they talk to the the potential applicant. They do a brief pre-screening to make sure that they, in fact, are, you know, going to pass even the minimal level of actual screening. Like, you know, do you make three times the monthly payment and are you ready to move now and all those sorts of things. And then they give those applicants a lockbox for the property. Now, uh, that obviously applies more to single family homes than it would to an apartment building. If you have apartment buildings, you don't want people wandering in and out of the halls who are strangers because you've got other people living there. But the folks I know who do that uh, say that it works very well. Now, your concerns are going to be, what if I give the lockbox number to somebody and they steal the plumbing? If they're going to steal the plumbing, I'd rather have them have the lockbox number so that they don't kick my door down to steal the plumbing. You're thinking, uh, they'll steal the appliances. Well, um, if they bring a dolly with them, they might they might steal the appliances. That's, a, that, that's an awful lot of work to steal appliances. And the folks I know so far are reporting that that has never happened to them. You're thinking, oh, they're going to move in without my permission. They're just going to you know set up 
set up shop in there. Uh, well, you you would probably find that out pretty quickly. And uh, again, I don't hear a lot. I don't hear people saying that that's happening to them, but. Uh, uh, you'd find that out pretty quickly and you'd, you'd you'd get them back out again. And it's not a bad idea to go around and you know change your lockbox numbers before each trip so that nobody has permanent access to your to your key. So that's a possibility, right? If you have even limited phone access, you can return calls every couple of days, do this little pre-screening and tell folks to let themselves in. Of course, you're also going to want to have an application form sitting there for them and um when you get back after four or five days, you can grab that application and run it, or you can have your maintenance man go over and grab it if they if you know that it's there. So that's that's since you since you enjoy it, you're not ready for property manager, you don't have a salary job. Uh, I would I would I would try getting creative, thinking a little bit outside the box like that. Um, let's see, cannot answer that one because it is asking for a specific recommendation. Uh, Here's an interesting question. This is from Anthony in Donora, Pennsylvania. And Anthony says, why are real estate agents required to be licensed and real estate investors aren't? Well, um, uh, the the brief answer to that is uh, real estate agents are dealing with other people's property and money in a fiduciary capacity. So when I am a real estate agent, I am, and I have, and I quote, have a house for sale. I don't really have a house for sale. My client has a house for sale. And that's a pretty big deal that I am being empowered by that client to do a lot of things in regards to that house, like talk to other people who might want to buy it. And my fiduciary duty f- uh, comes in when a uh, a buyer says to me, well, uh, I'm offering 50000 for this house you have listed, but I would pay 60000 Well, my fiduciary responsibility is to go to my seller and say, the offer's fifty, but they told me they'd pay sixty. On the flip side, if the owner receives the offer for fifty. And counters at sixty, and and but says, you know, I'd really take fifty-five. I cannot say that to the buyer. So there are some, there are some responsibilities there that real estate agents have to other people regarding their property and their money. You know, uh, uh, real estate agents who manage property take in rents on behalf of other people. So um, at some point. Uh, it was decided that somebody who is doing those sorts of duties and getting paid for them should have the have a set of rules around that and be licensed to do it. I believe that the other reason that real estate agents are licensed is because they wanted to be the um, the control over the real estate business and who can and can't do it that is exercised by the various licensing boards uh, allows it's sort of like having a union, right? I mean, we can limit the number of people who come in by making them become licensed and in the process of making them become licensed, make them take classes and jump through lots of other hoops. And then we can control them very carefully. Now that, that sort of uh, uh, begs the question of why are real estate investors not licensed? Well, real estate investors aren't typically dealing with other people's properties. We have our own properties. We are, we are principals in these transactions. And even when we're not principals by virtue of owning the property, we are uh, principals by virtue of 
some fairly strong contracts we have on the property. So for instance, if you're uh, buying a property on land contract and you're turning around and leasing it, the argument can be made, well, you're not really the owner, your name's not on the title, but yeah, yeah, but you have that equitable interest via the land contract and it's it's your own money that you're dealing with and your own property that you're dealing with and your own contracts that you're dealing with. Also, real estate investors don't want to be licensed. First of all, I'm not even sure what, what that would look like because, you know, real estate investor covers a wide variety of strategies and things that people are doing. Uh, and the second thing is, I think you find you'll find that in general, real estate investors are, are pretty um, pretty anti-regulation. <laughs> not not, and it's not about whether or not their behavior is regulated. It's just about uh, you know that 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 we should be in a free and open market, and uh, contracts should govern what we do, not what some outside source that does not understand our business might say. Uh, there's every once in a while, the topic comes up of how do how do we, being the real estate industry, control the bad guys out there, like the folks we were talking about earlier in the show. And someone says, well, I suppose we could create some kind of license. And then there's a general uproar and no way that's insane. If, if we let the government create a license, they will mess up the business and in ways in which it should not be messed up and will negatively affect everybody in the housing market, not just the real estate investors. So thank you very much for your question, Anthony, uh, and for all the questions today on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.